February 5th, 1995, the Virginia Pilot newspaper ran this story about Charles Robertson. Robertson should have just turned himself into the police because he would have still been convicted, but at least he wouldn't have been the laughing stock of Virginia Beach. And here's what happened. Charles robbed a bank. True story. Armed with a gun and a note demanding the money. And he was halfway to his car when he realized he left the note back at the teller. And fearing that it could be used to identify him, he rushed back and grabbed it from her and then rushed out and ran the block to his getaway car where he realized that he had left his car keys on the bank counter. It's a true story. I'm telling you, you can look it up on the Internet. We are all thankful for dumb robbers. Total panic set in at this point. He ducked into a fast food restaurant into the bathroom where he hid the gun and the money up over the ceiling tiles and then scampered his way through the back alleys, ducking below cars until he got back to his apartment where his roommate, who knew nothing of the robbery, greeted him with these words, Charles, where's my car? I need it. (laughs) You can guess what happened next. Robertson lied to him and said it was stolen and then stood by in absolute Horror as his roommate calls the police to report it. And it wasn't long before the police found the car. They found that the recovered bank keys worked in this car. And then they quickly made their way back to Robertson's apartment to make the arrest. Now, friends, listen, we might not be so different from Charles Robertson. Haven't you ever sinned and tried to get away with it? scheming to cover it up and then stood by in absolute horror as it unraveled out of your control. Has that happened to you? God calls us into honesty and he demands truthfulness. Friends, if you know me at all, you know I love to laugh. I love to laugh at myself because I've learned now in 41 years that the things that I take too seriously in my life are almost always pockets of pride that God wants to reveal. You know what? Solomon says this in Proverbs 17. He says, a cheerful heart is good medicine. Isn't that true? Oswald Sanders, he he emphasized the need for laughter. He says, and I want you to listen, should we not see that lines of laughter around the eyes are just as much marks of faith as are the lines of care and seriousness. He says this, a church is in a bad way when it banishes laughter from the sanctuary. In fact, there's a reason why writer and poet Robert Louis Stevenson, he wrote facetiously in his diary, he says this, I have been to church today and am not depressed. So friends, what does all all of that, what does James mean then when we come to chapter 4, verse 9, and he says, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Are we to be somber? Are Are we to be joyless in a gloomy church filled with dour believers? Friends, James is not saying that at all. In fact, he is calling us to take seriously 
the purifying of our hearts in repentance. We've been working through a mini-series, the 10 steps of a peacemaker. We're on the last two this morning. Number nine is to be serious. James has been saying some difficult things to these scattered Jews. Now listen, if you could possibly try to understand what this sounds like from a Jew's perspective. For most of us in here, sorry Emily, it's impossible. But you can imagine, James calls them adulterers. How would you like to be called an adulterer? He, he says that they're killing and coveting. He says they have a hatred toward God. Think of how acerbic these phrases are to the listeners. He says that they have friends with the world. Do you know what that would have meant for a Jew who did not in Judaism associate with Gentiles because separation meant purification? You sinners, he says, you double-minded. See, James is saying words that are provocative. Well, number one, they're true, but they're provocative because he wants them to see their heart. He wants them to be serious about what God, through his word, is revealing. The word change means to turn around. It's simple. Write that down, if you would. The word change means to turn around. We are to turn around from a casual view of sin to a serious view of sin. How many times in your life have you sinned and God has shown you it? And you muttered and prayed a hasty apology to God and moved on without learning to grieve, mourn, and wail. You see, changing to a serious view of your heart is the final step of repentance. James is writing to Christians who were content in their, in their pursuit of worldly pleasures, satisfied, though they were filled with favoritism, confident, though they were, they were running after power and respect. You remember, all these teachers, all these people, or a lot of them that wanted to become teachers, wanted to become teachers because in the first century, there was no social ladder to climb out of the bottom class. So if you wanted to get respect and power and influence in the church, you become a teacher. So their hearts were clamoring after the power that comes with teaching. And it's erupting conflict. Friends, listen, one of the problems in Christianity today, and I'm going to bring it home to our church, one of the problems that is in you and one of the problems that's in my heart is that we too often look at our sin with a casual view, 60 Minutes host Mike Wallace interviewed a Holocaust survivor named Yehiel Diner. And during the interview, a film clip was shown from Adolf Eichmann's 1961 trial. This guy, Eichmann, who, he's the one that administrated the concentration camps. He's the one that made them run. He's responsible for facilitating the death of millions and millions of Jews. And here comes this Jew named Denur to witness and to testify against Eichmann in his trial. And the videotape shows Denur entering the courtroom and he comes face to face, this is true, with Eichmann for the first time since being sent to Auschwitz almost 20 years earlier. Stopped cold. Denur began to sob uncontrollably, and friends, listen, it's on video, he fainted. In this interview, Wallace asked him, 
What was going on inside you that caused such a reaction? Were you overcome with hatred? Was it fear? Were they just horrible memories? Deneur said that it was none of these. He explained that all at once he realized that Eichmann, listen, was not the godlike officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was just an ordinary man. Now listen, quote, I'm quoting him. He says, I was afraid about me. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like him. Friends, when you see people that do atrocious things, is there an elevation to the throne that you were never meant to have and a judgment of the people that you were never meant to judge and a view of yourself as that I've never been capable of that? You know what James is telling you? The same thing he's saying to me. Start getting serious, friends, about your heart because you are capable. Turn away from laughter, he says, which is, here's what laughter is. It's that frivolous attitude in life, which is blind to the, to the sin in our hearts. The word laughter equates with the, the wealthy who find satisfaction in this life. That's what that word means. It's the pursuit of pleasure that is producing our conflict. James says we're to turn away from looking at this world, which we think can give us the satisfaction for our desires. Turn away from looking at the world and look at your heart and be sober-minded. Be serious about it. The believer's satisfaction, the Christian's delight, must be found not in this life, but in the one to come. It is Christ who holds all true pleasure for us. Isn't this what Psalm 37, 4 says? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. The world, friends, cannot give you the satisfaction that your heart's looking for. The Old Testament frequently portrays laughter as the scornful laughter of a fool. Look at this, like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. You know what? I have a wood stove at home and I'll often take a couple of handfuls of sawdust when I begin to start the fire and I'll throw it in there and it starts to crackle and it flares to a great light, but in a couple minutes it's burned away. This is what, Sol- this is what Solomon is saying. Such are those who are casual to their sin. They pursue their love to this world. Their frivolous nature is occupied with the world. And they blaze. And they're noisy. But they're short-lived. James tells us to be serious about the cause of our conflict. And to repent. This is what James means when he tells us to change our joy to gloom. Gloom isn't walking around, believer, with a dour look on your face. It's not hunched over having no joy. Doom is not standing on the precipice of depression. Gloom has a connotation of heaviness. That's what it means. Truly repentant people have changed from a casual, flippant view of their sin to a serious view where sin weighs heavy in our hearts. That's what it means when James says, change your joy to gloom. He says, be serious about your hearts. Be serious about this sin. Let the heaviness of it weigh down on you. This heaviness, this seriousness holds us to the necessary 
repentance. Friends, listen, if we don't grieve, now pay attention to this because this is what biblical repentance is. If we don't grieve, which means to think on our sin until the conviction seeps into our soul, if we don't grieve and mourn, become sorrowful and wail, express it and ask people to help us with it. If we don't grieve, mourn and wail and become serious about our sins, friends, listen, you can't be repentant. James isn't offering this is one track to repentance. He's saying biblically, this is repentance. If you want God's repentance to stir you away from sin, then grieve, mourn, Wail and become serious. Psalm 35, 30 verse 5 says, For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for a night. That's that sorrow, that grieving, that mourning, and that wailing. But rejoicing comes in the morning. Now listen, we're down to our last step. We just looked at number nine, which is to be serious. And number 10 means to be humble. This final appeal from James, it contains, it contains both a command and a promise. Here's the command. Humble yourselves, verse 10, before the Lord. Here's the promise. And he will lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord. It's a picture. Now listen, this is what it means. And the next time that you humble before the Lord, I want you to think of this picture because this is what the phrase was taken from. It's the picture of somebody bowing down at the throne of a powerful ruler asking for mercy. So to humble yourselves before the Lord means that you bow down on your face before a powerful ruler asking for God's mercy. The phrase, humble yourselves, friends, listen, don't ever forget this. It literally means that we must make ourselves low. That's what it means. This is what James is saying. Make yourselves low before the Lord and he will lift you up. It means to assign yourself to a lower rank or place. You see, when we glimpse our sin with seriousness, our hearts become heavy and they bow down before the Lord. Friends, listen, the ones who can't humble themselves to the Lord are the ones that have never changed their joy to the heaviness of gloom and they stand upright before him expecting a quick apology to be fine. See, when sin weighs down our hearts, it's natural to bow before the Lord. And this is what James is saying. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Second Chronicles 714. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, bring themselves to a lower rank and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. William Barclay, who is a commentator, fantastic writer, has said this. There is one sin which can be said to be the basis of all others, and that is forgetting that we are the creatures and that God is the creator. Friends, let me ask you this question, and please listen. I'm not your judge. God's your judge, so be honest with him in your hearts. Do you think you're humble? Do you think 
that you have assigned yourself to a lower place? Do you really believe that your heart is low before the Lord? You can't be a peacemaker without a humble heart. In conflict, I'm thinking about me. In conflict, I want to get my desires fulfilled. The other person, they've got their desires too, and they want to get their desires fulfilled. So my desires clash with their desires and pride is the motivating force that mean that moves me to begin fighting for my desires. You do see this, I hope, because this is James chapter four, verses one through three. Humility, assigning myself a low rank is the motivating force that moves me to lower myself and raise up the other person. You see, a lot of times we think humbling ourselves is just dealing with my own self. Humbling myself is lowering my rank while I exalt the other person's. How's that for the person you're in a conflict with? Remind the people to be subject to rulers, Titus says, and authorities to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one. Here it is, to be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility toward all men. You see, humility and peaceableness are intertwined. You can't have a peacemaking heart and a prideful heart. So James says when we grieve and when we mourn and when we wail as he's commanded, it's not the tears and the words that God looks for, but it's a deep sense of our lowliness and rank and an abiding dependency on God. Friends, I'm amazed at how many people really, truly do not understand what I'm about to tell you. You can choose Humility. Too many people think humility is something that's done to you. But James says, choose humility. Look at verse 10 again. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is a command to have an obedient reaction to. So how do we choose humility? Phillips Brooks once said, the true way to be humble Is not to stoop until you are smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. Friends, our greatness is smallness next to the greatness. You know, I've been working out lately. Most of you can tell. (laughs) And um, something happens when you work out. A lie begins to form. And the lie that begins to, began to form in my life this last week was, I'm getting pretty muscular. <laughs> I'm shedding my God fat. You see, my God fat's the fat that God gave me to help, let me put it this way, help other ladies stay pure around me, okay? I'm up here preaching. <laughs> I understand. That's a concern. I asked God for it, but now I'm no longer content with it. So I've been working out. And you know what? I thought, I'm getting pretty muscular. I'm looking pretty good. And I went in and worked out this last week. And I sat down on my machine. And I'm pumping iron. And all of a sudden, somebody sits down next to me that was huge. (laughs) Friends, she made me look bad. (laughs) She had muscles coming out of her muscles. 
And something happened to me. The smallness of my reality next to the greatness of hers made me restore to sanity. James tells us, humble yourself where? Before the Lord. Look at what it says. Before the Lord. Hi, Suzanne. (laughs) There is a back way to get there, you know. We are completely before the Lord at all times. But friends, listen, how many of us never live in this truth? I mean, seriously, think about this. We wake up and before our feet hit the floor, we need to center our thoughts on Christ. He is God. I'm not. He will lift me up, but not until I I bow my heart low before him. How can I do that in my family when there's demands all the time on me? How do I do that in my job where things aren't fair? How do I do that in my school where there's bullies? You see, living consciously, friends, is the secret that James says for how we can choose humility before the Lord is to keep him the center of our sights throughout the day. Because when we keep God in view, it produces a voluntary lowering of rank in our hearts. Job 42. This is exactly what Job meant. And I got to tell you, in Job chapter 32, I believe it is, Job, the, the word of God says that Job became righteous in his own eyes. Friends, that's not a good place to be. And he began to justify himself rather than God. And so you come to Job chapter 42 after that occurred. And Job says this, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself, which means I lower my rank and I repent in dust and ashes. Friends, to live before the Lord is to learn to choose humility. How can you think great of yourself when your eyes are filled with Christ? The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. The psalmist says he sees our pride and he reveals it for us. And as we see his glory, his great love and mercy in his word, we are we voluntarily lower our rank before him. And we live with the understanding that apart from Christ, we can't do anything good. You do realize that, right? Humility knows that apart from Christ working in and through me, I have no power in my flesh to do anything righteous. And all glory goes to him. None of it wears well on me. You see, friends, humility is a state of dependence. It's a place where self-confidence finds no welcome. For as long as we regard ourselves as independent of God, we are on our way to collapse and defeat. Humility makes you want to throw down your weapons of battle and stop warring with God. That's what humility does. It makes you want to get off the throne and back into worship. Isaiah says the fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. What a beautiful verse. Luke 14 says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know what James is saying? Would you look at verse 10 one more time? Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. He mean, it means this, that God will, ra- friends, listen, God will raise you to the height of prosperity and happiness. And I'm not talking Joel Olstein money. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to mention his name. Forgive me, I'm going to go through the 10 steps right now. 
But I do not mean that he's going to provide you with a flood of income. What he's going to do is he's going to provide you peace. Do you know that's the greatest contraband of Scripture? The greatest value of the Word of God is peace. Because it's shalom which sin is shattered. And only Christ can restore. He floods you with peace and happiness. Job 5 says, the lowly he sets on high. And those who mourn are lifted to safety. Friends, here it is again. Here's the picture. Prostrate before God. That's all right. Don't even, we're not even looking at you. Prostrate before God, begging for his mercy. And he reaches down and he lifts up your face. The irony of James is that the warring heart is battling for the heights. Friends, if you don't get anything else out of this series, know this. Pride always, without exception, there is no exception. Pride always moves you to sit on the throne that God rightfully inhabits. No exception. Humility always, no exception, makes you willing to lower yourself down to your proper rank. This is what James is teaching. Maybe this happens once a day. Maybe ten times a day. But friends, these commands are given to us and to help us find our way back to a pure heart. You know, some of you I feel bad for. I really do because I know the nature, especially of men. The men like the blueprints. Men like a set of plans. You want to give me, you want to get me moving, get me the instruction book. That's what men like. Some ladies are like that as well that I've come across. But friends, these 10 steps are not your instruction book for reconciliation. Do you understand that? They're not 10 techniques to help you resolve conflict and have a better relationship. These are 10 steps. Listen, they're 10 steps to find your own way back to a pure heart that is inhabited by peace. Because we can't be peacemakers. You can't use a thousand techniques to resolve conflict until your own heart comes back to its proper rank. Friends, what James is commanding, what he's teaching is how to help your heart be a peacemaker's heart. That's his goal. It's a pure heart that's again been washed clean by the blood of Christ and whose impure double-mindedness, you remember what that word means? It means that I want to get my desires satisfied the world by the world, but over here I want to get my desires satisfied by God. I try to do both at the same time. That's double-mindedness. James says, no, get it back to single-minded commitment and faithfulness, and you'll find your way to repentance and a pure heart that's inhabited by peace. These 10 steps were not meant to magically resolve every broken relationship. They are commands from God to create peacemakers out of his people. Friends, I want to close with a summary of this series very briefly. Here's the 10 steps. James has told us to submit to God because we're on the throne and he's opposed us. That means all of his might goes against us to drive us to brokenness. So he says, submit to God, which means to step back in rank. 
And then he says, resist the devil. And the word resist means stand fast with God and oppose the one whose very name, the devil, means trying to separate you. The devil tries to separate you from God in the midst of conflict. Because if you're warring with God, if you're unfaithful to God, if you're an adulterer with God in the midst of conflict, leaving him to get your, your love and your desires from the world, then you're separated from him. And he wants you fighting with your spouse. He wants you fighting with your parents and your children. He wants you fighting with people in the church because when you fight, you separate. So the devil means separation. James says, resist him. So submit to God, resist the devil and pray because this is a battle you can't win in your flesh. So come near to God, the one who can give you the power. And as you come near to him, he comes near to you. And as he comes near to you, he's going to bring you like the Old Testament priests to the bronze labor of Christ that holds the water that gives us cleansing. And as we go there, that bronze labor is sitting on a bronze basin that's made out of the polished mirrors of the women. And the polished mirror is the word of God. And as you come before the word of God, just like the priests dip their hands and wash their feet, the word of God cleans us. It reveals what needs to be clean. And what do you do when you see that? You begin to confess it. Confessing means I agree with you, God. I see it now. I didn't see this before. I'm in the midst of a fight. It looked like that person's fault. And now you're showing I've got responsibility in this. So I now see it and I begin to agree with God, acknowledging it. And after I agree with God and after I confess that it's time to move from a double-minded heart that says, I want the world's way and I want the God's way to a single-minded heart that says, Lord, I want your way. And that commitment moves us into brokenness. And moves us to look at our sin and stay looking at our sin until it seeps down into our heart and conviction. I am so tired of fighting. I'm so tired of these knockdown, drag out conflicts with my spouse, with my family, with my friend. I don't want this anymore. It's my fault. It's part of it's my fault. Lord, I don't want to be struck down with that anymore. I want my heart clean. And as we're broken, it moves into sorrow because there is no repentance without godly sorrow. And godly sorrow's job is to move us toward repentance. And when we find repentance, we need to be thorough because if you get a sliver in your hand and you take only the tip of it out and leave the rest of it in, you're going to get an infection. If you try to resolve a conflict and you've only said sorry, you have only apologized, but you haven't dealt with the raging desires and the battle in your heart, then you're going to get a spiritual infection. And that looks like bitterness, resentment, and hatred. And James says, be thorough, dig it out, let God show you it through through his word, and be thorough and get it out of there. And friends, James says this, don't even leave, don't even depart from the word of God, don't even get up from the word of God, stay in repentance until you're serious enough to take credit. And to take responsibility and to move through repentance towards forgiveness. And after you've done that, he says, come off the throne. Get back into the lowliness of rank. I am God. I'm the creator. You're the creature. You're to worship me and to love one another. And in your conflict, you're, you're asking me to worship you. And you're asking everybody else to love you. And that's not the way of a peacemaker. Friends, when we do this, God will lift you up. He will exalt you and he will provide for the true desires your heart is looking for. Amen. Let's pray. I'm going to ask with your eyes closed. 
I'm not going to ask anybody to come down front. I am going to ask you to stand. We've got to deprivatize our lives and get serious with the Lord. If you're failing miserably at peacemaking, I want you to stand because we're going to pray for you. If you're failing miserably at peacemaking and if you are willing today to say, Lord, I am committing myself to walking in peace. I am committing myself to obeying what you are already commanding. And I know that you never command anything that you will not enable me to obey. I know it's not a call of perfection, but I will learn the way of peace. If you can stand this morning saying that, Lord, I'm not a peacemaker, but I'm willing to commit to learn. I want you to stand right now. Friends, the church needs peacemakers. Can I tell you something even more? The world desperately needs peacemakers. If you're willing to stand, if this is something that you want me to pray for you about, then I'm asking you to stand right now. And I'm fully expecting that your marriages will look different, not perfect. Your families will look different. Your work at your job will look different. The way you conduct yourself in this church will look different. Because a peacemaker grabs attention. I'm going to give you 10 more seconds to stand. Pray for you, Lord. I want to pray for my brothers and sisters who are standing. And I want to ask, Father, for your help. Can they commit to a life of peace without standing this morning? Absolutely. But Lord, those times that we stay in that pew, because we don't want anybody to see, that's just another evidence of our pride. And Lord, I'm calling them out. Lord, I pray that you would teach them the way of peace. Heavenly Father, we really do not need 10 techniques to resolve conflict. We need hearts who are at peace with you and other people. And resolution happens naturally by the Spirit of God. Lord, teach them peace. Commit them, Lord. Change their marriages, their families, their relationships, their work the way that they live in this church, the way that they're a neighbor. Lord, I pray that you would change them and let this world see what a peacemaker's life looks like. Give them success, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would everybody stand, please, this morning? This has been a hard-hitting series. Not at all fun to preach, I can promise you this. But it's one that I think is at the core of what it means to be a redemptive community. A redemptive community, if they're not at peace, cannot be redemptive. So let's pray for that. And we're going to send you out of here. Glenn, I'm going to ask you to pray. I asked you to pray last week, didn't I? But you know what? You're you're such a godly man. Would you pray again? (laughs) Thanks.
and far promise until we meet again next Sunday. And all of us, Jesus. Amen. May your week be.